This week on First Lady and Friends, uh, we are celebrating uh, Foster Care Awareness Month, and our guests were Nikki McKay and Amanda Walker from Utah Foster Care. We had an incredible conversation, and I hope you feel like you can get involved in foster care and know a little bit more about it. Uh, We're excited to have you listen. Let's get proximate. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We have a really special episode today. We're so excited to have a couple of my very, very dear friends who um, I have been working with for the past year or so um, in the foster care space. And this month, the month of May, is Foster Care Awareness Month. So we are really diving in to this idea of child welfare and and the the work that's being done throughout the state with different organizations. But my particular guests today come from Utah Foster Care, um, Nikki McKay and Amanda Walker. We are so thrilled to have you here today. We're so happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Let's let's get into this. Let's first of all talk about you guys, uh, um, who you are, and a little bit about your backgrounds and where you came from, where you grew up, and all that fun stuff. Okay, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, I actually was born in Atlanta. My dad flew helicopters for Life Flight, and in Atlanta, he flew for the police department. And then we sort of started moving around when he started flying for Life Flight. And we lived in Memphis, we lived in Iowa and Pennsylvania, and ended up in Utah when I was a teenager for his work. They were um, housed at the Provo Airport, his company. And we've been in Utah ever since then. Um, and I went to school, we lived, grew up in Sandy, went to school at Alta High School, and went to college at Westminster studying psychology. Um, I worked with somebody whose husband worked for DCFS, and he was a supervisor, and so I started doing an internship in college at DCFS and went right into a job there as a foster care caseworker right out of college, worked there for four years, and then when Utah Foster Care started in 1999, I moved over there, and I've been at Utah Foster Care ever since. That's amazing. So yeah, foster care is something I'm very passionate about and um, gets in your blood for sure. And you just fall in love with the kids and the families and everybody involved. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Amanda, let's, let's talk a little bit about you and your, <laughs> where, where you started out. So I grew up in Arizona until I was about 13 and then my family moved to Utah uh, in Cedar Hills. And so I went to Lone Peak High School and <laughs> You're nodding your head I like I'm that. a baby. <laughs> I, know. Well, I was thinking that too, actually. <laughs> um, so I went to Lone Peak High, Lone Peak High School, uh, went to UVU studying deaf studies for a couple of years. Really? Yeah. And then mm-hmm. I switched to the U when I got married. My husband and I both went to the University of Utah and... Sadly, they didn't have a deaf studies program, so I let that go. What the heck? I know. University I, hope of that, Utah? I don't know if they still don't, but I think yeah. they should. It's a yeah. good one, or at least interpreting. That was my dream. Um, and then I switched. I was kind of curious, um, studying family, psychology, child development. So I did human development and family studies and with an emphasis in family violence and wow. just was really fascinated with that. And then had a couple babies and um, worked for JetBlue doing their Twitter for a while. And (laughs) yeah, and then I started my own marketing company and um, did some marketing and consulting for a few clients. 
And then I decided I wanted to just dive in. I had a special place in my heart for kids in foster care and just kids growing up having a hard time in general. And so I started looking around and decided I wanted to volunteer for Utah Foster Care. And that volunteering turned into like, I just dove in headfirst and it was a lot of time. So after a couple of years, they said, there's a position opening. We'd love for you to come. And and now I've just found myself in this whole world. And just like Nikki said, it totally gets in your blood. And you just, it's hard once you learn about what's happening in our state. It's hard to unsee it and to, like, you can't ever not care again. It's yeah. powerful. Yeah, that's, it's kind of been my experience as well. Just, you know, in the last year or so, just really trying to understand this. And to me, I think it was hearing the stories of friends who who had um, chose, chosen to foster and then just the stories of kiddos that have gone through the system. Um, yeah. So what other experiences have you guys seen that have, you know, kind of inspired you to keep doing this work? Because it's really tough work. Um, what other things are you seeing? It is tough work. And I, I think being a caseworker is extremely challenging. Yeah, like, let's talk. A, let's talk a little bit about that. I think a, a lot of people, um, if you're in the foster care space, you understand what a caseworker is. But mm-hmm. for those of us that that are new to it, tell us a little bit about the job of a caseworker and what that means. Sure. Uh, there's several different types of caseworkers. There's a CPS worker that's who does the uh, child protection services. They do the investigations. They'll make the determination on if a child should be removed from the home, can stay in the home with services, and those types of things. Uh, I was a foster care caseworker, which meant I had a caseload of specific children on my caseload, and I was working closely with their parents trying to reunify them. So that was anything from registering them in school, making sure they were getting their well-child checks, getting into therapy if they needed that, um, making sure they had clothes and supplies and whatever they needed in their home, um, helping the foster parents with getting them into the mental health services that they might need, um, getting them into school, getting their trackers and their counselors and everything set up. And then also working with the parents and helping them if they need to be in substance abuse treatment, if they need housing, if they need parenting classes. Um, There's service plans that are written up for the parents of things that they need to do in order to have their kids returned home. And so you're just trying to support them through that process Mm -hmm. and be an advocate for them and also for their kids. And sometimes that doesn't always match up. how you know how that all plays out and also advocating for the foster parents so it's really really a challenging job and most caseworkers are coming in pretty pretty green right out of college I for one was 20 years old and I I did not know what I was doing and I remember many times thinking I cannot believe they are trusting me to make this decision Really? of what wow. is going to happen with these kids and with this family like it's it's so monumental and how do i have the knowledge or skill set to make those big decisions so mm-hmm. it's a lot and it's at the time was um at the beginning of the lawsuit that the state of utah was under so they were 
um, just beginning to pour a lot of financial resources in to the system and, and hiring a lot of caseworkers. But caseloads were really, really high. And the day I started was like, here's your caseload. And you have a meeting at 10 o'clock for, you know, this residential screening and you have this and your head's spinning because mm. you just are trying to figure out a very complex system and all of the intricacies of where to help people, where to send them, how to refer them here and what services do they need and what do the families need and what do the foster families need. So just trying to navigate that is is really challenging. And there's a lot of emotion and a lot of raw emotion that is fair, understandable yeah. Yeah. Right, for what people are going through. Um, and, and I think that foster families don't always understand um, how much of it caseworkers take home with them. And just because the job ends at five doesn't mean I wasn't still worried about the kids that were on my caseload and what did they need and you know, were we doing everything we could for their family? You take that home with you. And it's really can be a lot. Um, I did not have kids at the time. Thankfully, I think uh, that would have been really, really hard to do that job knowing a little more personally what these kids were going through. Right. I thought I knew, but I didn't really understand till I had kids how important that blanket was, how important that meal was, how important the smell was, all the things that they were used to. I maybe knew it in my head, but I didn't know it in my heart until I had kids. And then I thought, oh, I, I, I wish I could probably go back and do some things differently knowing some of that. Um, I think that's why what you do for Utah Foster Care is so powerful, though, because you've seen so many sides of this. You have respect for the caseworkers. You have respect for the families fighting for their children to come to get their kids back. Yeah. You have respect for the foster families and the sacrifices that they make. And when you can see every side of foster care, you can see the humanity in every person and that people are really trying so hard and really care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where there's a lot of power. When And then what you're doing with Show Up Utah, being able to educate society and our community. And you realize a caseworker can't do it all. And a mom trying to heal from addiction can't do it on her own. She needs support. And these kids, like becoming more trauma-informed and understanding that sometimes behaviors of kids don't need to be punished. They just need to be seen and loved. It's yeah. it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, you're the show up mission. It's really, really amazing. Oh, we're, we're learning so much, especially from you who are in it. And, um, let, I, I want to go back because I think again, I've learned so much and I want people to understand it a little bit more. Talk about what happens, what, what the process is, um, from maybe even from the very beginning when you get that call, um, who makes a determination for removal? Who, you know, what kinds of situations are you seeing when there has to be removal? And then what's the process after that? Um, well, and and I may misspeak a little bit because I'm 22 years removed from actually doing that work. Okay. And a lot has changed um, with with protocol and policy and things like that. 
But generally speaking, um, the CPS worker that I referred Child to. Child Protective Services is CPS. Yes, mm-hmm. thank you. Um, they're the ones going out and, and talking to the kids and talking to the parents and making the initial determination on is this a safe place? Can we keep the kids here and provide some services into the home to keep them there? And that's based on, sorry, just the phone calls that people will make, neighbors, friends, teachers, somebody will make a phone call. So there's there's certain people that are also um, obligated to report. Mm -hmm. I mean, we should all be obligated to report, but there are some people that are legally obligated to to report, such as teachers, um, counselors, uh, clergy, those kinds of people are obligated to report. Yes. But if, if you get a phone call from a neighbor that says, I think something's not quite right over there and I've seen something with this kid that's troubling, that's the call that they take. And then they, from there they go do a welfare type check. Yeah. And I learned recently that they have an online form now too, because they have so many calls that they're keeping up with. If it's an urgent situation, Somebody, they say, always call because they will get to that first. But people can report concerns on a form. And um, I recently in a meeting um, on a panel with DCFS, which is Department of Child and Family Services, they were saying, just if you're concerned, just keep reporting it. Just keep bringing it up because sometimes it's hard for them to see everything Mm. when they go into a home and they think it's worth investigating and yeah, it can it can be anonymous if people um, have a concern. Sometimes then they're worried about ramifications if it's maybe a family member or a close friend or neighbor, and they're making that referral. Um, that can be anonymous, and it will never come out who reported that. So I think that gives some people a little bit of peace of mind yeah. to know that. Yeah, yeah, because you don't want retaliation. You know, fear of retaliation or something like that. If yeah. if they find out who who reported them, you know, if that parent is upset. Yeah. Okay. So then, so we get the call or online and, and it's reported. And then that goes to who? Uh, that goes to the CPS worker. They will go out, <clears throat> interview whoever they feel like. Do they, they bring law enforcement with them or does it um, depend on the situation? Depends on the situation. Okay. Yeah. I think not commonly, okay. but it does it happen. Usually, if there's only domestic violence or something yeah. of that sort reported. Yeah. Okay. It. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if it's and, and that is one thing I think that has changed a lot since I worked for DCFS is they are putting in tremendous efforts to keep kids in their homes whenever possible and provide the services up front and and help the families while the kids are still there. Uh, so I think that is is really getting better. And there's a lot of effort put there, which is great. Um I also think one of the other great things that that has happened over the years is um, there's something called a child and family team meeting, and that happens all at different stages throughout a case. Um, So if a child, if it is determined that that it's not safe to be in the home right then, they'll remove the child. um, They try to find a foster family that they can place them with, you know, right away. And then there's certain court dates that have to happen within, you know, timeframes that are set and and have to be met. So if a caseworker is deciding if a child's removed, that is going to go in front of a judge very quickly. And they'll look at everything and they'll either support that or say, no, we're going to work and we're going to return this child home with these things in place. Mm -hmm. So it is 
the caseworker's decision initially, but there are a lot of other eyes that come into play very quickly to make sure that was the right decision. Okay. Um, and then they have the child and family team meeting, and that is anybody involved in the child's life is invited to those meetings. So the birth parents, the caseworker, the attorneys that are involved, because once once the case goes into court, then there's an assistant attorney general that's assigned. They're representing DCFS. There's a guardian ad litem, and they're representing the child. And then there's a defense attorney that's representing the parent. So you have all those attorneys involved. Um, you may have some family members that are invited to the child and family team meeting, maybe teachers. Um, anybody that's involved in that child's life is invited and, and trying to get everybody at the same table mm -hmm. to say what's best, what can we all do, what does this child need. Um, I think and part of it is building a support, too. They want to bring family involved to say we need they need a village to get better and to what is best for the child, what's best for the family, all of it. So getting a lot of people on board because it's a lot for just the parent and child who are already struggling. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of, of you know, making sure that everybody sees the problem and, and mm -hmm. can jump in and help. And anybody can, can ask for a child and family team meeting, a foster parent can, throughout the life of the case. Mm -hmm. um, at any point, if there's something going on and someone wants to bring that group together, they can make that request, which is great. Yeah, that And that was great. not in place when I was a caseworker. So okay. that's, a, that's a nice change, and that's a great resource for everybody involved. That's fantastic. I, um, I want to continue this conversation, and Amanda, you said something about trauma-informed, and so I kind of want to keep going on that point when we come right back. We are back here uh, talking to Nikki McKay and Amanda Walker from Utah Foster Care, just really about the foster care system in general that I think people are, if you're not familiar with it, it, it is very um, complex. And um, what, I've, what I've learned, I think, with a little bit of time I've spent in this space is um, it's such a human endeavor that... It's really difficult and we have to have policies in place, but it's really difficult to put one policy across every situation. Yes. And I think that's why, you know, the flexibility and the, and the difficult decisions that have to be made. And like uh, you said, Nikki, talking about the, just the sheer emotion. I mean, I know how I feel when my, you know, some, somebody says something not nice about my child. I mean, the, the emotion <laughs> I feel, I can't imagine, you know. That moment where where a child you know might be taken away and the, and those things and all the things that go along with that. So, um, Amanda, you talked you you mentioned uh, trauma informed, and we've talked a little bit about that on our podcast. But talk a, a little bit more about what that means in the context of these families and the children that that we work with in foster care. So, I think. I think historically, a lot of us have thought of trauma as being something that like you can either see on the outside or it has to be this huge life thing. But you realize with time as more studies have come out that from the day you're born, there's a lot of trauma with attachment or neglect or just those those little life things that your body carries it throughout your life. And so I think a lot of these children have experienced things that um, 
that are considered trauma and um, very traumatic, even if it's not something you can maybe see on the outside. So uh, I think there's a lot of power in, as a society, all of us learning more about trauma and understanding it more because um, I think that is how we are going to break cycles and build a better and brighter future. Again, back to how much power there is in what Show Up Utah is doing Um, I think a lot of people have never heard of the term trauma-informed care or becoming trauma-informed or becoming a trauma-informed society. Um, I think uh, even things, thinking back to some hard days that I had experienced when I was younger, I couldn't stay awake in class. And I had good grades, but that's frustrating for a teacher to have a student that's falling asleep. Yeah. And... I, I wish so badly that I could have had a teacher that could have said, hey, instead of you need to like stop falling asleep in class. Um, right. And instead luckily saying, I had, I, somebody said to me one time, um, instead of asking what's wrong with you, they said it, it, it was Lizzo. And she said, um, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. I love that because right? I think every everything everybody does, thinks, feels is a result of our life experiences. Um, And I think everybody really is doing the best that they can, even if sometimes that's not that great. (laughs) Yes. And including family and, you know, family members, parents who, who may have to at some point have their children removed from the home and placed in foster care. They literally, what we've, what we're seeing is, the trauma that they've experienced yes. in their lives yes. led them to this place yes. with their children. And, and so when we, I think when we talk about being trauma informed, that means the people that are not doing great things yes. as well. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, these things often, I would say almost all the time, not all the time, but the majority of the time they happen because they never had that example or they grew up with a very similar situation. And um, I recently heard this sweet mom who had her kids removed. She's been reunified with them, but she was talking about how when she grew up, her mom grew up in the same situation. So that cycle repeated and her mom, a severe addiction. So this sweet girl who ended up having her kids removed, um, she was addicted to meth from age 12 because she just was in the home dealing drugs. Yeah. Yeah, That's how they made their money. That's all they knew. And it's not, I think a lot of people think it's a choice they're making, but addiction is so powerful that it doesn't really feel like a choice. And I think a lot of people also think if you really loved your kids, you wouldn't, you would choose recovery and not this, but, uh, she she said it so perfectly. She said, "No amount of love is stronger than can be stronger than addiction. Addiction is the most powerful thing." She said, "I loved my kids so much, but the addiction was stronger." And she worked so hard. And she said, "The thought of not making her daughter go through the same thing because she had so much hurt that her mom put her, what what her mom had put her through so much." so much frustration and anger towards her mother, but empathy, understanding, you know what? She 
didn't know any different. But the motivation was that her daughter wouldn't have to go through the same cycle breaking. And that is what drove her to recovery. Yeah. Well, and then so let's talk too about the we talk about the trauma of, of, of parents when they get because they they've had that. So that's almost always I, I, I don't think I can think of a situation and you guys have seen a, a lot more than I have, but that, you know, parents don't just. That doesn't happen without trauma in their lives. Absolutely. It just doesn't. I, I mean, I just don't. I just don't think that's even possible to. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, I guess the cycle started somewhere, but <laughs> sure. But for most people, that trauma is the reason. So then we talk about when a child's removed. Let's talk about that trauma and why we try so hard to keep them in there because um, that that trauma that happens uh, at removal. It's it's. Again, going back now that I've had kids, really thinking about that is horrific and it rips your heart out if you think about what that's doing to kids. And then on top of that, sometimes being separated from their siblings, who is their only safe. And maybe that sibling was more of a parental figure than their parents were because of the addiction. And now they're separated from them. Um, It's really traumatic for the kids. It's really hard. And I, I, we were talking on our way down here. Um, I think sometimes in the in the general community, the thought is, and it's said, we hear it, wow, these kids are so lucky um, that they were adopted, you know, by you, foster parent. And the foster parent, don't get me wrong, they're amazing, amazing parents, amazing people. But you know, we've had the, the mom that was told that said, my kids are not lucky that there's nothing lucky about being in foster care, you know, and no matter what the situation and and if they end up being reunified or if they end up being adopted, any child that's in foster care, that started with a huge loss, not to mention what happened before that loss. But if you're talking just removal in and of itself, that's trauma. And they have experienced huge loss in their life. And there's nothing lucky about that. Yeah. 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 That's that's so that's such a great, great point. And I'm also thinking about. Um, so then there's even more trauma if you, you, you reference taking away from siblings in that we've we've been talking a lot about how do we recruit um, more diverse families for foster care. Let's talk a little bit about that because when you take that child and remove that child, if you're taking them away from their language, their you know their first language, their uh, culture, their community, then the trauma is even more pronounced. So let's yes. talk a little bit about how we navigate that. Yeah. Uh, so there's in foster care, um, one in five, one in four children in foster care in Utah are Latino. Um, and so that's a huge need because like you said, imagine being removed from your home. I mean, going into a new home where you don't know anybody, you don't know their inside jokes, you don't know, you know, every family kind of has their flow and their vibes and how they do things. And that's different. And so then to not even be able to understand what's going on and that heritage and that culture is so important. And so um, we have amazing foster families who work hard. If 
if they can't find a home where it's a Latino home or a native home, we try to make sure those families can keep a connection to their culture and heritage as much as much as pos- possible. But it is really important to keep those kids because like you said, there's already so much loss with being removed from your home to have to lose your whole identity and your culture and heritage and all of that. That's hard. And that will always be a part of them and something that they always long to know and be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some other, let's just talk a little bit about some, some other, um, maybe things that are needed right now. We need, um, we need people, you know, families that are more diverse, especially our Latinx families. Um, what, what else is maybe a big need in the, in the foster community right now? Uh, the, one of the other biggest needs we see is uh, foster families that can take sibling groups. Um, back to the sibling issue, you know, we, we, I heard in a training years ago, and I never thought about it till somebody said it out loud. But generally speaking, your sibling is your longest relationship in your life mm. because your parents usually die before you do. You get married later, but your sibling is typically who you have your longest relationship with. So to take that away, um, it's just it's heartbreaking. So, but but that's a lot to ask of a family. Um, we were just talking about a foster family that took in a sibling group of five, and they were ages three to six months when they took in these five kids. Oh my goodness! And they had no other kids in their home <laughs> at the time, so they went from no kids in their home to five kids. And it goes back to things you've brought up is how are we wrapping around that family and offering support to that foster parent who's willing to have their life completely upended yeah. to keep these kids together? Yeah. Well, and it's hard enough to lose your, your parents and your home and your neighbors and your school. I mean, we try to avoid losing your neighbors and your school if possible as well. But to also lose your siblings, like those are your people. And we've heard some foster parents say, Foster parenting actually is sometimes easier when they can keep their siblings because they at least have somebody who knows their triggers and knows how they cope and they know their special blanket and they know that when they're nervous, they they want to be wrapped tight or they don't want to be touched or, you know, your siblings know your, the, all those little things about you. So some foster families say it can actually be helpful for those siblings to help each other and help the whole family navigate that together and learn how to best help those children heal. Um, a couple of other big needs are families who are willing to take in uh, teens. Mm-hmm. It's it's estimated that nearly half of youth in foster care are teens. And I think there's a lot of stereotypes out there around teenagers in foster Absolutely. care yep. when that's a lot of the time not true. I think... I think if a kid seems resistant to an adult, it's because they haven't had a lot of positive experiences with adults in their life. And maybe they're tired of not having a say in their life. And so I think a lot of times they just need to be shown safety and love. And every teen needs an adult, a positive role model to look to, to talk about just the little quirks of life. And I have a crush on somebody or somebody said something that made me feel embarrassed or I'm considering joining track and I'm nervous and that feels really vulnerable and whatever it is, just those parts of life that everybody needs some sort of safe person that they know is always there for them. And um, 
that also ties into the LGBTQ community. So we're always looking for safe homes for our LGBTQ youth. It's estimated nationally that one in three children in foster care are part of the LGBTQ community. And in Utah, something that a lot of people don't know is that you can be, that we parents can be LGBTQ. You do have to be married if you're a couple. It doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter, you know, what your sexuality is. Uh, um, You can be be married or legally married. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. But not living together unmarried. Unmarried. Yeah. Either. Okay. However you identify. That's a great distinction. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah. And so finding safe homes for those children is so important because as we all know, we all just want to belong and feel seen and validated and loved. And that's a really, you know, that's a really important part of this foster care mission. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought all that up because I think that's, I get asked all the time, you know, what, what can we do in the foster care space? I'm like, well, this is, these are the needs. And so that's what I wanted to make sure that we you know, our listeners understand what the needs are. And again, you know, kind of break down some of those preconceived notions of, uh, and stereotypes of what we, what we believe in, you know, talking about taking sibling groups. I had, you know, one of my inspirations for, for getting involved in foster care. And I've talked about this a lot. Um, my really dear friend that took in five at once. And then we also met, uh, at one of our foster events, we met a family that took in three different sets of five. Oh my gosh! She had fifteen. <laughs> There's some. We had some pretty big foster families yeah, out there. <laughs> I. It was like unbelievable, and I kind of just wanted to cry and hug her and just say, like, seriously, you're amazing. And so, yeah, I think um, there are some really cool people, and the rest of us <laughs> need to wrap around them, and and that's a big part yeah. of it. And I want to continue to talk about this, and I want to talk about um, Utah Foster Care's specific mission. Um, and how that fits into the rest of the child welfare space here in the state. And we'll do that when we come right back. We are back here with Nikki Walker. Nikki McKay. I was going to look at it again and I was like, oh, I'm going to get this right. I could be called Nikki Walker. There's She's a amazing. really amazing person, Nikki Walker, in our Nikki, state. So. Nikki McKay and Amanda Walker from Utah Foster Care. And I think we were talking about this a little bit in the break of um like there there are a lot of organizations in in the state uh, several of a uh, of organizations that are doing work in the child welfare system utah foster care is not dcfs they are not the state agency and i think there's sometimes people get that confused um just based on the name utah foster care but you are let's talk a little bit of what you are um what your mission is and how that fits into the rest of the system and maybe what the sort of the lanes are for, for other organizations working in this space. So Utah foster care, we find qualified foster families. We uh, train them with the trauma informed trainings uh, so that they're best prepared to help these kids heal. And then we support the foster families while they have children in their home. And then we work to support them afterwards. If, if the case ends in adoption, uh, throughout their whole journey. So that's what Utah Foster Care does. Do you have like caseworkers or do you call them something different? We have different? social workers okay. who help to make sure that the families that are interested in, they help find foster families. And then those who are interested, we help make sure that they are a good fit. Um, 
if somebody comes in saying, hey, I want to make a little extra money, that's an instant red flag that you tell, being a foster parent is not the place to come to try and make extra money. Because if you're properly taking care of the kids, it shouldn't be an income. Right. The state has funds to help support you while you're supporting the children. So there are social workers who help to go through. It's called an initial consultation, and they can ask all the questions. So the team is amazing. They, A lot of them are foster parents themselves, mm-hmm. and so they really know what it's like and can speak to that. So how do they, this This is a question I have because I've had several friends, again, also family members recently who have um, trained to, gone through the whole, the process of becoming a foster family. And I, w- what's your balance between scaring them off oh. with, the, with the honesty of what it, <laughs> what the experience really is and like encouraging them to like, continue down this journey? That is a great question. This is a constant conversation that we have (laughs) because if we put everything on the, I mean, it feels like a lot of information at once. Um, It would probably scare a lot of people away, but we also don't want to paint this perfect picture. That's not reality because then we're bringing in the wrong people. Right. And it's, it's, Similar to parenthood in general, but yes, maybe on steroids, right? It's amped up. But some of the challenges that any of us have faced as parents, if somebody said before you ever had that child, you're going to be dealing with X, Y, and Z, you might say, I'm out. I don't want to do that. But if they're going to say your child, you know, that you know and love and have cared for is going to be dealing with X, Y, and Z, you say, Bring it on. I got you. Yeah. We're going to tackle it together. Right. Yeah. So it is that very tricky balance because once the foster families are in it and they love these kids and they, they will fight mm-hmm. and they will advocate and they will do everything humanly possible to help them. Yeah. Um, but it would sound really, really scary if we stood up in our training class and said, Everything that they were about to take on, I don't know that we would get. We do try to dive in pretty quickly to like, hey, actually, what we want you to do, and this is something we don't hide even like on social media. We say we want you to get attached because a lot of people are scared. I don't want to get too attached because you say if this if we're supposed to be fighting for this kid to go back home, it's like that's actually the point. Attachment is so healing and so powerful that. We want that kid to experience attachment, mm. and that's that's well, hard and scary for people. To, but once you yeah. start realizing how powerful it is and witnessing the healing and getting to be a part of that, it is, like you said, it really like gets in your blood. And Yeah, so it, again, another a friend of mine that, that was fostering infants, and she had one infant, and then she... And it was her first one. She ended up they she adopted, and then she had twin, identical twin infants that wow. she then also adopted. Um, but I remember her. She got one in between those those you know those children, and I remember her saying, "No, I think it was her first one." She was telling me, 
you know, it's that, am, am I keeping him? Am I not keeping him? I don't know. I don't know. You know, and she's working through the process, going to court yeah. dates, going to the visitations, doing all these things. Is mom getting her stuff together? Is she not getting her stuff together? And I remember her, she and I having these really deep conversations about how do we, oh, and the, and the, and the, the, just the, oh, the really tough moments of like, oh, I, I really want to love this baby so much. And is he staying? Is he not staying? And I remember her at one point, she came to me and we were talking about it. And she said, you know what? I finally just decided it doesn't matter. This child deserves love for however long I can get it. And I got to stop protecting my own heart and just love this child for whatever time I have him. And, you know, now he's hers forever, but she didn't know that. And I think that's to your point is sometimes we're we're too afraid to protect our own hearts, even with our own children. We have to, yes. <laughs> you know, we have to like go through the tough stuff with them instead of protecting our own hearts to really just love them. And, you know, whether I've had experiences not with foster, but just, you know, I had a, a, a youth in our congregation that needed a place and was with us for six months. And it was, you know, and I thought, well, I'm just going to love this kid for six months and and of course it's not for six months it's forever yes (laughs) and i'm getting to experience and witness for however long what a healthy loving relationship and family can look like there's a lot of power in that so knowing i just have so much respect for our foster families and the parents and everyone involved in this whole world but the however much time they get to feel that attachment feel what love and safety feels like and witness healthy relationships that not only could heal that child but that is generations that could be impacted by this because that's how those cycles are broken and it is so important so like she said like you know what i just want this kid to feel this love for however long he gets to feel it that is amazing yeah well, and it goes back to the support piece that Utah Foster Care tries to provide. That that's been one area that's really been lacking is for families that do step up and they provide that foster parenting and they love these children, and then they everybody knows from the beginning we're working towards reunification and trying to get these kids back home or with a kinship placement. Um, that doesn't mean that doesn't hurt. They can support reunification and believe in it 100%. And still, when that child returns home, their heart is ripped right out of their body. And so we are starting a new um, program, a grief and loss support that is clinically based. So we have staff that are clinical uh, clinicians that can provide um, one-on-one and also group therapy with families that are really struggling with the grief and loss initially and and provide some support and try to help them work through that and keep them involved as foster parents so they don't just say, this is too hard, I can't do it, but this is really hard, how can I get through it? And we're helping them through that. Um, So that's a pretty new program and we're really excited. That's amazing. Well, and I think that's where the power in our community supporting them and the awareness is really valuable because they need the community to rally around them. It's so validating when they get to hear you tell them, thank you for what you're doing. And knowing that Utah's first lady is vouching for them and sees them and knows that they're in this fight and 
in this good cause and mission of healing, that's very validating. And so if our neighbors and our friends can understand why somebody would do this <laughs> and yeah. not, well, that's what you signed up for, right? Yeah. When they yes, go home, right? that comment of like, well, you knew that was going to happen. Okay. And it still really hurts a lot, right? I, I, mean, I know my kids get to graduate and leave home, but that doesn't make <laughs> yeah, it any easier. Right? Yeah. It hurts. I know. Yeah. And um, a foster parent just shared the sweetest thing. She just said, yeah, it hurts. This is hard. This is hard, hard work. But if we aren't going to do it, then who is? And so for the families that are able to get to that place and are able to provide a safe and loving home for these children, for the others who can't, everybody can support a foster family. Everybody can support a mom that's trying to recover from addiction. Like you can, you can support your neighbors in that. Um, And like you said, like you say, like you can pretend to care. Everybody can pretend to care, but you cannot pretend to show up. Yeah, you can't. I mean, showing up for those families, I it's just critical because you think about, and this is what I talk about a lot is this: you know, they are the most vulnerable. These children are the most vulnerable children yes. in our state. They really are. I mean, mm-hmm. the the trauma because and everything that happens. Think about it. it: if a child comes into foster care, into a a non family foster home, not a kinship placement, that means there was not one other person in that child's life and in their parents' life that could take their kids. Yeah. You yeah. could list 20 people. You could list, I could list 20 people. That's what people kinship is, right just for now. those who might not understand. Kinship yeah. is somebody who's a family member or, uh, or a relative a friend, or right? a friend. Which I mean, is about a half from what I understand, right? Mm-hmm. About a half That's of That's the our, goal is to get most children yes. with them yeah. and then foster families show up when that can't happen. But that means there's nobody in their world that could step up and say, I got your back. I can have your kids until you get back on your feet. Yeah. And that to me is is just mind blowing. Well, yeah. I mean, the, I think the, about the people that in my life and like at yeah. a drop of a hat, I Absolutely. can call, you know, yeah. nine your siblings and, you know, and parents and, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Spencer's siblings. And, you know, like I have an entire friends, right. you know, all around me. Can you imagine nobody? Yeah. A moment where I, I just can't even everybody fathom needs that. some form of a village to support you yeah. in whatever form in life. Yep. Yeah. Just just amazing. So so let's in the in the few minutes we have left, just there's so the DCFS, those are that that's the state organization. Yes. Um and, and they are responsible for um really making you know the caseworkers and making those removal decisions. Uh Utah foster care preps families, finds families, recruits, retains families, trains families. Um, and then we have a couple of other organizations um, that we we work with that show up, but mm-hmm. um, raise the future. Talk a little bit about their mission. I think we've talked a little bit about it, but yeah, how so, does that fit in? So the families that Utah Foster Care is recruiting are general foster families across the state. So if you want to be a foster parent and you just say, I've heard about your mission, I want to be a foster parent, they're going to call us, they're going to work with our staff, they're going to go through our training and become licensed for any child. They can identify the age range and the gender and all those things if they want to do that. Uh, Raise the Future is an amazing organization, and they're doing child-specific recruitment. So they are working with a specific child, maybe Johnny, who's 15, whose parental rights have been terminated, and they're looking for an adoptive placement for that specific child. And they're going out and doing all the recruiting. And then 
if a family steps forward and says, yes, I'm interested in taking Johnny, then they come to Utah Foster Care for the training and then they become licensed. And and so they're out in the community doing really, really amazing things for really vulnerable kids and very specific populations. We refer to them as waiting children. um, That's who Raise the Future works with is those children who are just ready and waiting for their forever family. Yeah. And so if a family comes to us and says, I I actually don't want to be a foster parent, I just want to adopt, we'll say, well, you know what, raise the future. There's so many kids that would love to have that family today. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. today, after you go through trauma-informed <laughs> training so you can be the best now. parent possible. Yes. yes. <laughs> I think every parent, their potential parent should go through trauma-informed training. Right? I've I think so of the stuff. parent from these classes. Right? They're incredible. Yeah. I mean, all of us should probably go through that process before we have children. Again, probably try not to scare yeah. us off. We really even do want like you to continue to have children. Yeah, yeah. Right? I think yes. not even just a parent. Like, if we can see each other as... Yeah. People with life experiences. Yeah. There's a lot of value in that. Well, and, you know, we work a lot with educators and I think about them. And you you talked about having a teacher that was like not understanding where you were coming from. And we see that a lot when we're talking about being, you know, emotionally intelligent and all these things with with our educators and and just people that are in that child's sphere. We all need to do better to to see children not as their experiences or not as their behaviors but what's going on behind uh-huh. what Again, is the behavior communicating? Like, what to are us? you? And, that, and that's what I learned in special education. I remember we, we talk a lot about behaviors and how we want to, you know, change inappropriate behaviors to, you know, appropriate mm-hmm. behaviors. But there's always a reason for that yes. behavior. I mean, there's ways to sort of redirect and figure out, you know, how to get that child to do an appropriate behavior or at least express why? What's the reason? And I, I, even mm-hmm. as a child, I remember my dad, my mom one time said to me, you know, I was, I was, it's hard to believe, but I was a little tough kid, <laughs> but <laughs> it's hard to believe. <laughs> I, uh, but I remember my mom, like one, <laughs> one experience. I remember her saying like, what, what's going on? And then me having to really reflect, what is going on? Why am I behaving like this? Uh-huh. And then it really, anyway, I, I just think that trauma-informed for everyone uh-huh. is everyone. critically important. Yeah. I but um, I, I so appreciate um, your the work that you do in the state. It is, it is critical for these, these children um, that are experiencing this trauma and, and grief and loss and, you know, really providing that, uh, you know, a place for them to to go. Well, while thank they you need that. for what the Show Up Initiative is doing. It's been really powerful to see how intertwined all these organizations are and how all of these vulnerable populations really are so similar. And yeah, yeah. it's just been really amazing to see how the conversation how powerful that is. Well, thank thank you. you. And thank you for really, um, Nikki, Amanda, this is, I think for me, it's been really informative and I, and I hope for our listeners. And if, if you we're we're going to, you know, make sure that you know how to, how to report and as well as how you can get involved uh, with Utah foster care. If you want to become a foster parent or other ways that you can uh, get involved and help foster families in the state. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. 
To find out more, you can go to utahfostercare.org, also dcfsutah.gov, and the hotline to report abuse or suspected abuse is 855-323-3237. Thanks for being a friend.